All right, it's DT Systems, dog tested and dog tough. You know, we like that dog in them, baby. We've been using the H2O 1820. Over the last several months, we've been playing with this unit. Our friends at Standing Stone Kennels, Ethan and Kat, they've been using it for years, and we've been playing with it. We really like it. I think for the dog trainer, the hunter, and the guy or gal who's training their dog to get ready for duck season, we'll really enjoy the 1820. Super reliable, super consistent, great unit for you and your dogs. H2O 1820. Dog tested. Dog. Gunner Kennels, baby. Hashtag man's best kennel. Well, it's also now hashtag man's best food crate. It's freaking raccoon proof. You can't get into this thing. Your dog can't bust into the lid and eat all the food. Trust me. I know Memphis has done it in the past. She looks like a blown up pumpkin. Boom. But not anymore. We've got the Gunner Kennel food crate. It's easy to pack easy to store, keeps food dry, which food's an investment, man. That Purina, baby, it ain't cheap anymore. So keep it dry, good, all that stuff. Easy to pack, easy to store. The Gunner Kennel Food Crate, slide into DMs if you'd like to learn more. All right, our number one asked question is revolving around force fetch. Whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water, or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird, let me help you help your dog. Bunch of different breeds, bunch of different personalities, start to finish teaching you how to do it. Links in the description. Because you simply cannot do advanced training effectively without solid fundamentals. So as a trainer, I'm constantly evaluating my dog's behavior, how they're upholding the standards in these areas, and making sure that when it's necessary, that I, you know, reinforce the standards for all of these things. Or if necessary, go back to some drill work to elevate the standard when the dog's having difficulty in it. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have our friend Kevin Chef back on the show. Kevin, how's your winter going? And tell everybody but a little bit more about yourself if they haven't tuned in to all the previous episodes. Uh, I'm doing great. Winter's been going great, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm working hard on, on a lot of retriever-related things, but I'm also enjoying life a little. I got to spend new year's eve in times square i went out to colorado did skiing in the last couple of weeks but life is good living here in, in tampa florida or near tampa florida so enjoying things now if people don't know me my name is kevin chef i'm the retriever coach and basically what i do is i help people become better dog trainers and, and at times i'm keeping them out of trouble and just steering them in the direction they need to go coaching 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 awesome and what we will do is we will put all the previous episodes in the show notes below that Kevin has joined us on. So if you really enjoy the show, but you haven't heard it before, you can go back and listen to our previous episodes with Kevin. I'm going to let him take it away. He, he's he got a great episode planned for us. He's put a lot of thought into it, and we're going to have our fun, witty banter of educational and entertainment and education, as I say. Kevin, take it away, man. I, I love the idea of, of what today's episode will be about. Let it rip. Thank you, Up. You know, we, we always talk about what uh, what topics we're going to cover when we do these podcasts. And um, one of the things that I thought we could chat about today was advanced training. Oftentimes, 
if we think about fundamental training and intermediate training, those early stages of dog training, our focus is rather linear. And what that means is that we work on one skill and or drill, and then we move to the next one, and we complete that one, and then we move to the next one. For instance, we start with tree training, and then we do basic obedience, and then we do collar conditioning, and then we move on to fun fetch and teaching the dog to hold and then reaching a little. And, it, and that just continues on in a linear fashion. We're not jumping all over the place covering a bunch of different things. And it's the same with marking development. We're really going in a linear fashion and installing some good habits, skills, and we have a plan that, that jumps from one, uh, one drill or, or one situation to another with respect to marking. But then we get to advanced training. And all of a sudden, not only, you know, we don't just have two paths where we're headed on, these paths start to diverge or branch out into several different areas. And this is where it becomes complex. This is where trainers tend to get overwhelmed. They get lost. They get intimidated. They focus too much in one area, not enough in others. And our goal here today is sort of help people get a mental image of what the framework looks like to really do advanced training with the dog and create the type of dog and create the type of handler and trainer you want to be uh, in order to, to have a great outcome to achieve your goals. Absolutely. So I, I don't always like to put age brackets on dogs because one, people will be too proud of themselves if their dog is younger than this. So they'll say their dog is the greatest because it's seven months old doing all this stuff. And I also don't want to make anybody feel bad that their four-year-old isn't at these things. So as we talked, like the word you use is fundamentals. Let's really quickly say like, these are the steps we want to have proficient and have taught before we're worrying about what we're going to have this whole episode be about. So if we're talking about fundamentals and intermediate training, it really is all of the steps and I'll get to timeline in a minute, but it's really all of the steps that install the foundation under the dog that are going to support them in the advanced training. So they're, they're the things that I mentioned earlier with, with respect to force fetch and force to a pile, moving on to three-handed casting, advanced T or some form of a T, and then some other handling drills to transition those skills that a dog learns in the yard to the field. This can take quite a bit of time, you know, but it could take year it could take longer quite frankly it just depends how often you're able to get out and train more than anything else or whether you're up north in the winter time and you can't get out and train so you know this isn't a rush nobody should ever think that training is a mad rush to get things done or you need to be here by a certain point it's really about making sure that you're doing everything in a thoughtful methodical fashion and you're putting those building blocks underneath your dog that are going to support them through advanced training. In terms of marking, we're talking about some good habits right at the beginning. You know, and I've talked about those in another episode with you, which you'll refer to in the notes at the end of this. But we talk about, you know, teaching the dog these core skills, which is watching the mark through the arc of the throat, going straight to the retrieve, finding the retrieve without a hunt, learning or shaping some behavior in terms of steadiness, 
developing that into doing a double or a triple, taking it from the yard to the field, introducing it in the water. There's all of these steps that happen throughout the marking development phase as well that are very, you know, structured. Have I answered the question? But that all that yeah. marking training takes place during the drill work. We don't want to separate those two things and say, well, we're going to do all the drill work first because that's really important. If that's your train of thought, you're making a huge mistake. You need to use that time as well to develop the marking side because when you get through intermediate training, your dog is going to need these core, skip, core marking skills in combination with the drill work skills that you've developed in order to move on to advanced marking concepts or blind concepts for that matter. Absolutely. I also would say that it helps balancing their attitude. The marking stuff is really, really fun. And so if your dog's getting bored with drill work, you know, A, you need to kind of manage that dog's attitude during the drills and maybe end the session sooner or whatever. But the point is when they go out and do marks, it's a way for them to take a deep breath and use their natural instincts. They don't have to think as much because they're just going and doing what they're bred to do. Now we're teaching during those things, as Kevin mentioned, but the point I'm trying to make is it helps balancing act that dog's attitude as it's developing. So they don't even know they're learning, but they are. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's, uh, there's got to be payback, right? The dog is working hard for us. They're working under stressful environments they're, because they're learning new things every day. I'm not talking just about the, the e-collar pressure or the training tool pressure that we're using, but we're talking about the mental pressure that they're under every day to learn something new. And it is new every day to a young dog. And so just like you said, we need to give a little back. We need to create this bond, this trust, this teamwork between dog and handler, this attitude of looking forward to getting out there every day, no matter what we're going to be asking them to do. And it comes from the stuff you just mentioned with giving them back something like marking that's their dna that kicks in and says i gotta get that i love that that's that's my whole reason for being you know that's what yeah saying. absolutely yeah so again everybody we've got a strong foundation you know and and think about building a house right we with all the fundamentals all the marking development all the drills we have built the foundation we've constructed the frame work of the house it's now time to put the roof on and start adding the appliances and let's make it ours. And so let's talk about advanced training. Let her rip, tater chip. As I said, it gets much more complex at this stage and this is where it becomes intimidating. People feel a little lost. And that's because there really are so many different areas to work on. I feel, you know, and when I quickly sort of work through this in my head, I said, well, there's really about seven different areas we need to work on or continue working on. One is fundamentals. When I'm referring to fundamentals, and I don't know if we want to go through these one at a time, Bob, or we want to just mention them all quickly and then go back through them, but fundamentals That's what I prefer. Yeah. Go through them all and then okay. we'll hit them. And then we'll hit them. So the seven, seven sort of areas we need to focus on are Fundamentals, number two, marking development, number three, blind development, four, drill work, five, handlers handling skills, six, issue and, pro issue and problem management. <laughs> one. 
and seven, attitude, momentum, and confidence. And you might say, well, that's not a lot. Kevin is talking about, you know, six or seven things. And yeah, absolutely. I know I need to train on those. But when we start to break those up into each of their individual components, that's where you go, whoa, wait a second. There is a lot there. Yeah. And even thinking about this episode, it's like we're about to drink from a fire hose here. There's gonna, <laughs> There's so much good stuff. So let's dive into fundamentals. We kind of already did, but during the advanced training, you're still working on those things. So what are those fundamentals you want to be working on during your more advanced work? Absolutely. And just just let me reassure people right now, the people that feel like they're drinking from that fire hose. So they're like, wow, I'm hearing things from Kevin and Bob that I've never even I don't even know what those terms mean. Don't worry about that right now. Just the most important thing is to get what you can out of this conversation between Bob and I. And as you get more experience, as you be, you know, are exposed to more things, they're going to start to fall into place. And what I want you to do is come back and listen to Bob's episode six months from now or a year from now. And you're going to go, ah, that makes sense. Now I can put that into practice where it, you know, I, I've got a place where it fits in my head. So don't worry about being overwhelmed. Just get what you can out of this conversation today. So we're talking about fundamentals. We're talking about five different things. These are my five fundamentals. Go, stop, come, basic obedience, bird handling, and delivery. Why am I talking about these? Because these are the things we focus on during the basics and intermediate stages of training. However, they are the key to being successful. I don't really care about all of this you know, super exciting, advanced stuff that we're going to be doing if we don't have solid fundamentals, because you simply cannot do advanced training effectively without solid fundamentals. So as a trainer, I'm constantly evaluating my dog's behavior, how they're upholding the standards in these areas, and making sure that when it's necessary, that I, you know, reinforce the standards for all of these things, or if necessary, go back to some drill work to elevate the standard when the dog is having difficulty in it. So it's about watching and paying attention to how your dog is behaving with all these things. When I tell the dog to go, are they going? Are they popping? Are they freezing on a cast? That sort of thing. When it comes to stopping, I'm talking about stopping on a whistle in the field. Does the dog stop crisply? Do they put the brakes on? Do they spin around completely? Do they plant their butt on the ground? Do they look at me? When I tell them to come, that's self-explanatory. Basic obedience, how are things going when you're going to and from the line? What's going on on the mat? If I've got a dog that's animated, creeping, making noise, how can I sit there and deliver precise information to get them to pick out a gun station or a line to a line? It's very complex. Can't do it. So I've got to have those fundamentals in place. Bird handling and delivery, we have many dogs, you know, as a, as a person who goes out and does seminars all over this country all year round, I am constantly seeing dogs that have bird handling and delivery issues. And the last thing we want is a dog that's going to freeze on a bird at a hunt test or a veal trial. And so when you say freeze, it, you're saying stick, like sticking. Yes. And so sticking so on a bird, sticking and freezing on a bird means that the dog's not giving the bird back to you. They just clench down and hang on tight. And that is a giant no-no. Giant no-no. And once you're there, it's really hard to fix if it happens at an event. 
But people and people will say, hey, I, my dog has never done it before. I've never seen it. They've never done it in training. And, and the truth is, mm. there are about 20 symptoms of freezing that happen in training all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I've never trained a dog that will not exhibit one or two or many of these symptoms at some point during their training career, whether it's with a bird or with bumpers. And I'm always on the ball to make sure that I address any of those behaviors in training because that's what prevents freezing on a bird. And just just if you have a bird handling or delivery issue and you're not sure how to deal with it, right now if you go to my website, www.theretrievercoach.com, there's a free resource button in the top right-hand corner, and there you can get a free lesson on ident- that identifies all of the behaviors you can see and how you can deal with any of them. So feel free to go there and grab that. No charge. Boom. When Kevin and I go into the duck blind together, you know that we're packing the business, baby. Man, when I've got to pull up on a old Drake Millard, I want to make sure that if my aim is true, that that duck goes down. And I am slinging the bismuth at him, baby. Check him out. Kent Cartridge. Bismuth. At it this duck season. From the duck blind to the holding blind, baby, it's Purina. The food that fuels the truck of lone duck. The big dogs are eating the 3020 Purina Pro Plan Sport. We do the chicken blend. I've also had friends that have super success on the salmon blend, but it's a great food to fuel the athlete that gives you their all. So why don't you give them your all? Feed Purina. I will also add to that real quick. One of the things that is my giant pet peeve is someone running an advanced dog. And I'm going to even say a senior hunter and above you know, master hunter, qualified all age, all that advanced opens and stuff. At the Master National this year, it was, the word I'm going to use is appalling because that's how embarrassed I am to watch someone training and working at a national event and they are having that nationally competing animal dropping birds at their feet, begging them to fetch it back up, um, watching the dog parade around because he doesn't want to give it up right away. And they're begging for a nice delivery when, so to me, that's a person who missed the fundamentals and moved forward. And the dog is progressing really nicely, but we've got a chink in our armor. We've got uh, a crack in our foundation. And so to, to, I don't want to beg, borrow and steal to get this dog to come sit nice next to me because what that also does is when I'm lining up for my memory birds, when I'm getting ready to run a poison bird, I need that dog focused on the next task at hand, not dinking around at the line. So to me, those fundamentals of bird handling and delivery, it sucks to move forward and have to keep backing up and worrying about that stuff. Let's make sure that stuff is right. I think you make a, a, a great point there. And also too, if the dog is just more focused on keeping the bird because they want to eat it or delay getting on with the test, I mean, are they really focusing on what else needs to happen out in the field? Absolutely. No, when things are complex, I mean, this is, yeah, enough said yeah. on that. Yep. 
we're moving on to marking development. And this is the big, one of the big intimidating ones. You know, and, and as I said earlier, oftentimes people are a little lost. They don't even know what, what directions to head in. And a lot of trainers or training groups tend to just go out and set up a test that they would see at a hunt test or a field trial and say, this is, if I'm seeing this at the hunt test, and this is what I need to work on. This is how I need to work on marking. And nothing could be further from the truth. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yes. Yeah. So if, if this is something you're doing, listen closely. I, I think you could find out some things that would be very valuable to improve what's going on in the market. So when, when you go to a hunt test or a field trial, what's happening is the judges are assembling a whole bunch of different concepts. They're adding a whole bunch of factors in. We can talk about what those are in a minute, but they are adding a whole lot of complexity to a test in order to check to see, are you training your dog? Are these dogs disciplined? You know, are they capable of marking accurately in these conditions? And if we just throw those all into our training test, there's just too much there for the dog to really, you know, learn one particular thing or a couple of particular things in order to learn how to do them well. And so what we want to do as trainers is break all of this down into seven or eight different components and focus on each one of those in our training. And we, we rotate through all of these things on a constant basis. We evaluate how the dog is doing in each one of these areas. Um, and then we make adjustments. So let's talk about the different marking development categories that we need to be thinking about. Um, the first one is marking concepts. That's where we're teaching dogs, you know, how to do a check down bird, how to do a punch bird, how to do equidistant marks. And you might say, well, what are all those things? Well, the punch bird is one where the dog has a tendency to break down earlier, early and begin to hunt before they achieve getting to the destination. Or a check down bird is one where the dog tends to overrun the check down mark because there's something drawing them deep. In equidistant marks, we have two birds that are relatively close together. And in those situations, dogs either want to switch, maybe tempted to switch, or go back to an old fall. So we've got marking concepts, you know, and there are several others that you would want to add to that category and work on those. We work on teaching dogs to fight factors. That's number two. What does fighting a factor mean? Well, you know, there are things that push or pull a dog offline to a retrieve. They are crosswinds. They might be, a, in terms of water, that would be consist of entries. You know, dogs want to run around an entry into a pond. There are exits. If a dog has to angle out of the pond, they tend to want to square out. If they're swimming adjacent to a shoreline, they might want to land grab. So that those are the factors there with respect to water. We also have cover. When you have a cover change, especially if the dog is approaching it in an angle or they see an opportunity to get around it, that's going to cause them to move left or right and get offline to the retreat. And the, the last one is terrain. Dogs tend to square straight up and straight down terrain or fall off of it if they're running it, if they're running along a hill. So we need to do some training that teaches the dog to hold the line to the retrieve. And that's what we're talking about when it comes to fighting factors. 
Third category I have here, and by the way, these are in no particular order, is marking accuracy. People forget about this one, and it's a big one. You know, I cannot win a field trial. I cannot pass a hunt test unless my dog accurately knows where the bird, especially in complex situations where birds are really close together. If they begin to expand their hunt so much that they get out of one fall area and into another, whoa, now you're in trouble. So marking accuracy is, is really important, especially in the field trial world where you're judged against the other dogs. And if there's 80 dogs in a field trial, and one dog is marking more accurately than yours, and the rule book says that marking accuracy is of primary importance, I better be focusing on that in my training. Mm -hmm. My next category is marking and line mechanics. And what I'm talking about here is, you know, the things that I talked on, on a little bit about during the, the uh, basics and intermediate training, <clears throat> I need a dog to watch the bird through the complete arc of the throw and mark where it lands on the ground. If a dog is head swinging, meaning they're looking off the retrieve before it hits the ground, they're not get, giving it a good enough look to accurately mark where it is. I also need to be able to communicate with my dog to pick out destinations that are very close together or have tight lines. And this is not only true in marking, but as I'll talk about in a moment on blind retrieves, I need to be able to communicate very complex things, not only the line to the retrieve, but the depth of the retrieve in certain situations. So can I ask real quick? Yeah. When you say depth of the retrieve, do you communicate with your dogs with like an easy command or a way out so that they yes. focus like that? Yeah, I, I would say that with a check down bird or a bird that a dog might overrun, I'm going to use an easy cue. And there's other cues that go along with that. I don't typically put a hand in when I send for a check down bird. I send with a lighthearted tone. So there's three things that I'm doing to help the dog understand that this bird is a little bit shorter than you might think it is, or to be open-minded to any clues that you might encounter on the way out to the retrieve that's going to help you locate that check down bird. With a punch bird, I've used some long or way back cues. People, people have a, a, a cue word that sort of, with these cues like easy or way out, we're typically attaching those words to the destination before the birds are being thrown. Right. And so it helps the dog recall what gun station they were looking at. And this can only happen if you're doing standout gun training. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here and off track. Yeah, yeah. But over time, and these are not things that are learned overnight, they're learned over the course of years, what the context of all these cues mean. And so, yes, we will use different cues, different tones of send yep. to indicate the depth of the retrieve. Yep. Same here. Uh, looking at my list here, retired guns. Well, some people only work on retired guns because they're doing uh, hunt tests. Let me, f I feel like we, with the line mechanics, I asked a oh. question. We weren't fully done. I would say. Oh, sure. Yeah. I think the ability to communicate on the line where let's just say a poison bird situation that dog wants to go get the mark and I have to have communication and self-control and discipline from the dog to understand no bird here or heel push and pull and be able to manipulate them on the line uh, before 
you know, just that that's part of it. I feel like we didn't finish talking about it's just like being able to push and pull where we want them to go, when we want them to go, and how we want them to go as a team. At the line, we're a team, and I'm the coach, captain, and team owner. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I thank you for clarifying it. It's really about, you know, that this category is about teaching the dog to pivot. In other words, lining the dog's spine up correctly. Mm-hmm. And they have to be able to do that rather easily, and they have to do it in a way that's where they're composed. They're not jumping forward on you. They're not taking several commands to do it, you know, at the advanced level, it, they're, they're very willing to do it. And then targeting, which is the act of getting the dog to, to look in a specific direction. Those, they, these, you know, when you get into a master level hunt test where you can have five birds laying on the ground or an advanced field trial, an all-age field trial, you've got to be able to ask your dog to do very complex things and they have to understand what all that language means. So we have to practice that. Absolutely. Okay. So my, one of my biggest pet peeves was earlier with dogs who drop and fumble and screw around with the duck at the line during their delivery. My second biggest pet peeve, and I will chew a handler and dog out is when you're trying to line them up and you say good and they step forward. Or you say here and they step forward and then the owner steps forward and then the dog steps forward and then the owner steps forward. And you're just like, the dog is trying to take control at the line and the owner's giving in to try and pass the test or win the trial or even in training because they're nervous versus addressing it in training and saying, you make forward progress without me saying anything. I've got a problem with that. Sit here. That just means, you know, maybe your two front feet shift a little bit towards me or just your head cocks a tenth of a degree, right? I don't want forward momentum and then the owner pushes up and moves forward or like leans way far ahead to try and line the dog to where they want to go. So that is a big line mechanics for me. Sit is of the utmost importance when I'm trying to work a dog at the line. All right, check out LoneDuckOutfitters.com. We've got gear. We've got upcoming breedings. You can see all the dogs in our breeding program. If you're interested in getting yourself into a Lone Duck dog, this is where you can learn more. Check it out at LoneDuckOutfitters.com. Absolutely, and and we're going to get into that a little bit more. You know, I said one of the um, categories that we need to focus on is issue and problem management. As you said, as a trainer... I'm constantly looking for patterns of behavior. And if you have a, you know, if you're working with a client, Bob, and this dog is every time they come to the line, or let's say they just first time you're working with them and all of a sudden, or maybe you've been working with them for a long time. And all of a sudden the handler comes to the line and they're trying to line the dog up and the dog moves forward a step or two steps when you're in the process of trying to line that spine up. Your, you know, alarm bells are going off in my head. I was like, well, wait a second, that's not mm-hmm. good. Make a, you know, and hopefully they make a correction. If not, I remind them to make a correction. But then if we continue on in the progress of trying to line them up and then step forward some more, even after a correction, now alarm bell number two goes off that says, wait a second, now we have a pattern of behavior. We want to tackle, you know, in our problem development folder, we're going to get out of this complex environment or after we get done in this complex environment, we're going to go back, we're going to go and simplify 
and try to tackle this in an environment where we can simplify things and really focus on the problem. Anyway, we'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back to that, but that good stuff. Retired guns. Retired guns. Well, um, define know, what it is for someone who may not know. Absolutely. So a retired gun is a mark that's thrown from a station where the, the thrower could be visible and then hides after the throw hits the ground. Or it could be a hunt test like situation where the bird comes out from behind a holding blind and, and there's no, no thrower visible whatsoever. In my mind, at least, I don't think that every marking test should contain hidden gunners or retired gunners. Whether you're running hunt tests or field trials, I think you have to do a combination of both. There are reasons for that. Um, but what I'm talking about here is a couple of things. One, I want to make sure the dog understands the mechanics of doing a retired gun. And that means they watch the bird through the arc of the throw. And if it's a field trial scenario, or even if it's a hot test scenario, because we're going we're gonna to be training with standout guns, if the dog watches the thrower throw the bird and then walk back to the holding blind to go into the holding blind, now they're no longer looking at the mark. They're looking at where the thrower went to. And I want to teach them the mechanics of refocusing on the bird, targeting the bird so that they're going directly to the bird rather than running to where the thrower is. And there's a, a way to do that. And then the second area that I'm talking about here is simply confidence. Confidence or believing in themselves that they, even though they don't see the gun station, even though they might not be able to see the holding blind, they can trust their instincts that they know where the bird is and that they're confidently gonna get to that fall area. And that's a huge part of doing retired guns. Mm -hmm. And we have to give them experience in the right ways to be able to do those confidently and accurately. And the reason why I bring that up is because we are, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be teaching dogs to fight factors. We're going to be teaching dogs marking concepts. And in those situations, the marking is rather complex or the tests are rather complex with respect to marking. And that's where confidence tends to decay. That's where ac accuracy tends to decay. And so we want to make sure that we have some balance within the training so that when the dog's marking confidence and, and attitude and maybe momentum tends to decay on, on retired guns because they're tough and hard, we're balancing that with some really simple retired guns so the dog can go out there and pound it, no questions asked. We're setting them up for success. They understand the mechanics. The mechanics are clean. They're targeting the retrieve, not the holding blind. They're not getting lost. That really is an area that needs to be focused on. My sixth category here under marking development is tight marking. You know, we're constantly doing tests that cause dogs to be uncomfortable with tight gun stations. And I don't care whether you're doing field trials or hunt tests. What kind of training could that be? Well, number one, what if we do a poison bird? In other words, we have a gun station throwing the mark and then we're doing a blind past a poison bird. And as the dog is approaching the depth of the poison bird, they start to you know, grab for that poison bird. Or maybe they slip a whistle yeah. and maybe they don't give you the cast. And so what ends up happening? Perhaps we make a correction or two corrections and start to use some attrition. And you know, in some shape or form, 
we're going to get the dog to the blind. But what happened in the area of that poison bird? What did we apply? Pressure. Mm -hmm. And when we apply pressure around gun stations, they might be more disciplined about not getting the poison bird, but it might also make them uncomfortable going close to a gun station. And so we start to see flaring when gun stations or lines to birds take them tight past a shorter gun station. That's just one thing that can cause that to happen. Another thing that can cause that to happen is a dog that is on the way to a punch bird or a long mark, and they all of a sudden, when they're on route to it, they dive into a shorter gun station. They don't punch out to the fall area. They end up returning to an old fall, and so we end up dealing with that problem. And we're putting pressure on the dog again, not necessarily with the e-collar, but even whistling and telling the dog, no, don't stop there, keep going create some pressure Mm -hmm. and we're causing a flaring problem. And so we have to focus on teaching the dog to become or to to remain comfortable going tight to these gun stations. Again, that's about balance. My next category is land and water. I mean, we just talked about a whole bunch of things where we're focusing on skills or concepts or, you know, factors or whatever it is, all this training is happening on land. And now we need to take it to water and teach them, teach them this stuff on water as well. And we also have to manage confidence, attitude, momentum um, in and around the water. So that that just poses a whole, you know, that's a whole other area that we have to work on. Right. Um, and I, I've already mentioned this, but it's my last my last bullet point here is confidence, attitude, and balance. If we focus too too much in one area we create a problem in others. And I just described one where if we do too many poison birds, does that mean the dog's going to overrun a check down bird more easily? Does that mean they're going to flare gun stations more easily? The truth is it certainly can, but how do we prevent that from uh, from happening? We make sure that we have balance in the training. So if we're going to do, if we're going to do poison bird blinds, we make sure that we do the stuff that we talked about with tight, tight gun stations or if we do check if we do poison birds we better do some check down birds as well and focusing on teaching the dog to check up early and not you know overdo it with respect asking a dog to drive past a gun station shoulder mark right that was a lot wasn't it and so that was just one of the areas (laughs) so one of the things that i'm I'm going to jump in and just make sure everybody's listening and hearing, because this is what I, a lot of my takeaway is. As the dogs are developing these real big skill sets, we're balancing. It's a, it, when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste, it's coming out one end or the other. So we want to try as best we can to maintain our balance through these processes. And what I find a lot of folks do is, they do what they're comfortable with and they do what's kind of fun to go and do. And therefore some of the things that they maybe should be focusing on, they lack and only focus on the fun stuff. And so the balancing act becomes imbalanced. Same with the dog. Like you can use that with the dog's attitude. You know, it, they may be focusing on a problem area too much and therefore the attitude goes down. So they're overdoing it on the tough stuff and not balancing act. So throughout the process of building the dog, I'm trying to maintain the confidence, the balance, 
um, all this information that just was described is all about balance. So when you're thinking about how you train throughout your week, your month, your summer, balance. I'm really glad you brought that up because that was a point I really wanted to, to cover here. And I'm just going to drive a point home that really spoke to the stuff that you just talked about. You know, as, as somebody who's trying to get my dog to a higher level so that I can pass hunt tests and, and go to the master national, or I'm trying to win field trials in order to, you know, to get a title or something like that. My brain is always telling me, I need to train hard. I need to train hard. I need to train hard. If I'm not training hard, I'm not accomplishing anything. Mm -hmm. Well, nothing could be further from, from the truth, really. Balance and working on attitude and confidence requires us to do a little bit of hard and follow it up with a lot of easy. And then that's mentally preparing the dog for a little bit more hard and then we balance that with a lot of easy. In terms of marking, if I set up really tough check down birds and I can set them up where I can get 75 or 85% of the dogs to run past them. If I set up tests like that over and over and over again, even though my dog might be good at check down birds, if they fail enough times, they're actually going to get worse because they just don't believe in themselves. They don't believe they can do them. And because they're feeling the pressure of that particular test, and they can identify, mm -hmm. they're going to go, oh, crap, I can't do this. I'm, I, they don't even want to try to do it. They're looking for ways not to do it because they set so much pressure in it. And this is... This, I'm so glad you brought this up because I want people to know that doing, if I'm going to set, and I'll just talk about the same particular scenario, if I'm going to do a really tough check down bird, or I'm going to do a couple of really tough check down birds, I'm going to do two or three check down birds that are so easy the dog can't fail. Mm -hmm. So that they still believe in themselves and go, yeah, you know what, I think I can do it. I recognize what I did wrong in that first test or maybe that second test because Failure is necessary for a dog to learn and grow, but I've got to back it up by building them up as well. Good job. I agree. I dig it. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Couchers. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one -on -one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. 
As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.